The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Matthew 9, 10 through 13. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. This is the word of the Lord. Family, good to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited for tonight. If you have a Bible, you can go right to where Keila just read, Matthew 9. We'll get there in just a little bit. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into what God has for us tonight. Father God, um, we thank you for uh, the church gathering, that we get to be together, that we get to sing about uh, your goodness and glory and also what you've done for us. We do not deserve your mercy and kindness, but you give it to us. And not only that, you promise to grow us and mold us into your image. And we're excited that we get to talk about what it looks like to be more like you and to do what you did, Jesus, in your name. Amen. If you're just hopping in with us, this is the second week of uh, a series that's actually a small part of a, of a larger group of sermons that we have done over the past two years. So uh, this is actually the third act, the third movement of the series that we've called Rhythms and Formation. Each fall, uh, we've been building out our discipleship framework that really is there to just answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus and the normal day-to-day life stuff? So we started two years ago, fall 2020, by saying in order to get there, you have to first be with Jesus. That You have to uh, have spiritual disciplines and practices in your life to orient your life, your day-to-day, around being with God. Second, uh, last fall, we talked about becoming like Jesus. We talked about the fruits of the Spirit and how we can uh, put ourselves near Jesus to form these fruits in us. And then this fall, we're talking about doing what Jesus did? What did Jesus actually do? How can we practice and emulate that in our lives? That's what Tim talked about last week. And this week, like the rest of the weeks in the series, we're just going to be talking about the practices. What did Jesus actually do and how can we do it ourselves? So that first practice we're going to be talking about this week is eating and drinking. Eating and drinking, which you're probably like, that's a weird one to start with. Never thought about that. Eating and drinking as a, as a practice, as a spiritual practice. You might think, um, okay, doing what Jesus did. Maybe teaching, maybe praying, maybe healing the sick. I would like to be able to do that. Maybe casting out demons. That's a fun one. And, and we'll talk about all of those, but this might seem like a strange place to start, which it's actually not when we consider the way that Jesus actually talks about himself in the Gospels. So it's interesting that Jesus repeats a certain phrase about himself uh, throughout the Gospels a few times. It reveals a lot about himself, about his heart, his desires. Three times Jesus says something that goes like, the Son of Man came. 
Son of Man came. So the Son of Man is a title that Jesus took uh, that has a lot of theological implications. You could preach a whole sermon on it, but a quick flyover is one, it's a reference to the incarnation, that Jesus is both uh, God and man, that he's God that has donned human flesh, and it's a reference to a messianic prophecy in Daniel 7 where the Messiah is described as being a son of man. So that's his title that he describes himself as. And basically the phrases go like this. One, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is probably one we're familiar with. It's Jesus saying, I I came here to save those that don't know me, that are separated from me by their sin. I came to live, to die, to be raised again, that they would get my perfect record and I would take all of their sin on myself to seek and save the lost. The second is the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the ransom of many. Kind of the same type of deal. Jesus came uh, to die, to sacrifice himself, but also comes in humility, emptying himself in the words of Philippians, and to give away his life to save us. And then the last one is the Son of Man came eating and drinking, which you don't have to know a lot about this to think that's not the same as the other two. One of these is not like the other. This is a little bit weird. Uh, Tim Chester, he wrote a book called Meals with Jesus. And his explanation, I think, is super helpful. He says the first two statements are why Jesus came. They're his mission. The second one is his method. Or the third one is his method. Mission versus method. Now, not his only method. Not his only method of ministry on earth, but one of the primary ways of of Jesus to minister to people far from God was by sitting at the table with them, one meal at a time. It was a huge rhythm in his life. So much so that at one point he's described as a glutton and a drunkard, which he wasn't. But I would just ask, how often do you have to be at parties, uh, at meals to be uh, falsely accused of being a glutton and a drunkard? hasn't happened to me, right? You have to be there a lot. In fact, in just the Gospel of Luke alone, there's over 50 references to Jesus and food and drink. In Matthew, there's 90. Here's just a few from Luke. Don't have a panic attack. Note takers, this is just for you to look at, not to write down. But uh, here's a big picture flyover. In chapter 5 in Luke, you see dinner uh, at Levi's house. He was a tax collector. You might know him better as Matthew. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. There's tax collectors and sinners at this feast of sorts. In chapter 7, he has dinner with uh, Simon the Pharisee. This is where he gets anointed by the sinful woman. Uh, In chapter 9, he feeds the 5,000. In chapter 10, you see we meet Mary and Martha. Martha preparing the meal. Mary sitting at his feet. Chapter 11, dinner with the Pharisees. He does this often oftentimes rebuking them as he's at the meal with them. In chapter 14, he tells a parable, part of which he says, when you throw a party, invite the poor. He's at a meal teaching this. Chapter 15 is famous, prodigal sons. How does it end? It ends in a banquet feast. Chapter 16, we get the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man said, eats like a king on earth. And Lazarus goes hungry. And then it switches. Doesn't end well for the rich man. Chapter 19, you get dinner at Zacchaeus' house, the little man. Chapter 22, right before Jesus' death, 
Passover, communion, what is that? It's a meal together with the disciples, the Last Supper. Chapter 24, this is the road to Emmaus, right after the resurrection. Jesus is disguised from two of his followers, walks with them all day, breaks bread with them, and then disappears. They're like, what happened? And then later on in the chapter, he goes to the disciples, revealing himself, and one of the first things he says, you got any food? I'm alive. Do you, where, do you have anything to eat? Just a few more uh, noteworthy ones. In the Gospel of John, his first public act of ministry. It's at a wedding. Turns water to wine. And then one of the last chapters in the Gospels of, of John, he reintroduces himself and reinstates Peter to ministry after he denies him three times. What does he do? He cooks fish on the beach, which I just think is a nice little biblical affirmation that cooking meat outside is close to the heart of God. That's your practice for this week, and we're done. That's it. Now, uh, Robert Karras, he wrote a book called Eating Your Way Through the Gospel of Luke. He says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Another said, uh, if you're reading the gospel of Luke and not getting hungry, you're not paying attention. I love that. It's a huge rhythm in his life, eating and drinking with people, those far from God. Um, this is obviously, I think, very evident that it's a huge part of Jesus' life. Well, what I want to do for the rest of our time is really talk about why and why it actually was, why it matters for us. And that's what will bring us to Matthew 9. We'll see just that. Why is Jesus actually doing this out of all the things? Matthew 9, we'll start in verse 10. It reads, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house. So we'll pause right there. First thing we have to see here uh, is that this is sort of the language of, of when Jesus is at a meal with somebody. It says reclined at table. And we got to see, this isn't, um, this isn't comparable to our types of meals. Um, like a lot of times I think we can glance over this and be like, oh yeah, it's just Jesus kind of sitting down at a table like we would. I think even the most famous depiction uh, of Jesus doing this, the Last Supper picture painting, right, is him at a long table with the disciples sitting there. It's actually really inaccurate. It's not how meals actually looked here. So in Middle Eastern cultures to this day, it's actually customary that you're lounging, that you lay down. You can either lay away from the table, but many scholars think that the more accurate depiction of this is that they're more like laying towards the table on their stomachs, and you would prop your head up with your left hand and eat with your right. You're literally laying down. Sounds amazing. Second thing that is different is that these meals took hours. Many scholars think these took upwards of five hours. So they're laying down. I mean, maybe they're taking a nap. I don't know. It just sounds amazing. All that to say, the big point of those two things is that Jesus doesn't spend his life rushing around. He's not impatient at these meals. He's spending unhurried, focused, intentional time with the people he's eating with. You got to keep that in mind for what comes next. Look back, it's still in verse 10. It says, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So that, be that behold is, is literally a word that says, Wait, pay attention. Don't glance over this. Look at what's happening. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. 
Now, uh, in our culture, sinner kind of sounds like a mean word. And actually, in this culture, it was a little bit worse than what we could imagine. It's more of a people grouping, people that were outcasts, that weren't allowed uh, to worship God. They were far from God, the rejects of society, which, depending on your background with Jesus, this would be very surprising that he would be spending time with these people, because at minimum, Jesus was thought to be an up-and-coming Jewish rabbi. And for some, they already thought that he was the Messiah. And in the Jewish tradition, you had to maintain a certain level of purity to actually be able to worship God and be seen in right standing with him. And there was a number of ways that you would do this. One would be things like sacrifices throughout the years, so things like burnt animal sacrifices to uh, maintain your purity in God's sight, to be forgiven. Another thing you'd see is people like rabbis and priests they'd have to wash themselves more frequently than others. Wash themselves, wash their clothes. They'd also have to maintain or uh, avoid certain things. So they'd avoid places uh, that could uh, contaminate you, corrupt you, places like grave sites. But they'd also have to avoid certain people. Not just places, but people. And sinners would fall into that category because they're impure. And if anything's impure, it can make you impure. So you avoid it. You avoid it all together. Now, this is ironic because the, the Pharisees were the religious leaders and they didn't quite realize that all of us are sinners, but that was their posture nonetheless. And then here's Jesus sitting at table for hours, laying down, reclined, relaxed, intentional time with tax collectors and sinners. The worst of the worst. Like we said last week, tax collectors are traitors to society. Sinners could range in all types of things from prostitution to any type of immorality out there. People in this culture, no one would want to be seen with. And people start to take notice of this. Verse 11 says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, they're like, What are you doing? Aren't you supposed to be a rabbi? Or the Messiah? Don't you know these people can make you impure? What are you doing? So they go behind his back and they ask the disciples. And Jesus overhears this, and he gives us a beautiful insight into his heart. Look at verse 12. He says, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Beautiful insight. It says, God's heart, my heart is for the sinner. To be near the sinner. Jesus came for the sick. Those in need of saving, that, that's us. We're the sinner here. We're the tax collector here. And, and something we have to see, we can't miss this, is that uh, Jesus? you cannot separate Jesus' words in verses 12 and 13 from his actions in verse 11. Like we said, verse 12 and 13 is the mission, and 11 is the method. See, Jesus is sharing meals, going to parties, spending time with sinners, is one of the means by which he shows his love and grace to those far from God. See, it's not, it's not about the food and drink, right? Throw up the title and you're like, oh, I just need to eat and drink to be spiritual. No, it's not about the eating and drinking. It's not about the time. It's what he's doing with it. He's extending welcome. He's loving those far from God one meal at a time. He's sitting there saying, come back to me. I love you. Be in relationship with me. 
which I think you just have to imagine what it would be like to be one of these sinners at table with this guy who's maybe the Messiah? You've lived in this hyper-religious society your whole life that's maybe told you over and over that you can't approach God. How dare you? How, how easy would it be for these people to believe that God hates them? Because the Pharisees certainly do. God wants nothing to do with me. And then there's Jesus going to them at the table, inviting himself over, meeting them where they're at. He even puts his own reputation on the line. He's called a glutton and a drunkard. That's not true. What's actually true is he loves the sinner and he's after their hearts. And that's what he's doing in all of the stories where he's at meals with these people. He's loving those far from God and he's showing us what mission looks like. He's showing us what mission looks like. Which goes right back to the question I asked at the beginning. Why does he do this? Out of all the things, why does he do it? In order to be on mission with people far from God, you have to know people far from God. That's why. Because in order to be on mission with people far from God, you have to know them. And in order to know them, you have to spend time with them. A lot of time. Jesus' amounts of time. Spends hours and hours with these people. Copious amounts of time with people far from God. Very simply, he knows them. And he's known by them. Right? You could say um, that this is actually the first step in what being on mission actually is. Just carving out the time, being there. Spends hours and hours with them. Um, I think one of the big concepts in the Christian world uh, and even in our church is we talk about things like evangelism. Who are you on mission with? Who are you building with? Have you shared the gospel this week? And all of those things are really good. But I think we get stuck with that question. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how. Maybe I'm really worried about what happens when I do it. <laughs> right? How do I have the conversation? What if the thing comes up? What if I don't know the answer? We hyper-focus on how to talk to people about Jesus, about the gospel, which isn't a bad thing. But I think what we're doing is we're jumping to step three or four. And we're missing the first step which is just being with people, just being near them, grabbing coffee, grabbing a drink, having a meal, having a moper, going over to their house, learning their stories, asking questions. Where'd you go to school? What do you do now? Uh, where are you from? Why'd you move to Charlotte? Why haven't you moved from Charlotte? Where do you want to live? Where do you live now? Things like that, small things. It's the first step. And you might think, Wait, what about, what about steps three and four? That doesn't sound very extraordinary. Well, you get to three and four by doing one. And how amazing is it that following Jesus would include something as ordinary as just spending time with people, just having a meal with people, eating and drinking with people. Um, I have a friend, um, her name's Erica. She's like elite at this. I don't, I don't get it. Um, she is kind of my boss. We work together. She's kind of like a big sister to me at this point. We worked together for about two years. Um, Erica is a mom of three. They're seven and under. They're wild, and she would say that too. She also works like crazy hours. But um, something I noticed about a year ago 
is I would go to like these, you know, conferences, you know, maybe just with our coworkers, whatever, training, and we'd maybe hang out afterwards, have a lunch, have a dinner, and I would just think, wow, we just had a conversation about God. This happens all the time. Isn't that random? These, these people just love talking about stuff. I just, it's so cool how this comes up, and the conversations are great. About a year of that, started to realize it's not random what is happening here. It's Erica. It's Erica asking the questions very respectfully. She's very good at it, very sneaky about it, but not in a weird way. Um, I realized after thinking about it, it's actually not weird for these things to come up because Erica has spent countless hours with these people. Hours and hours working together, but not just working together. They hang out all the time. They go out to eat. They've been to her house. She's been to their house. They've gone on trips together. They've gone to sporting events, concerts, whatever. Very simply, she just spends time with people. And because of that, there's trust. They're able to have the conversations. Simply, she's just friends with people that don't know God. And she makes time to be around them. And is it scary to bring up God? Yeah, that doesn't go away. And we'll get into all of that in the next couple of weeks. We'll talk about preaching and teaching and how to actually have those conversations. But what she does is she takes the first step. And that's what leads to all of the other steps. She steps in and spends time with people. It's beautiful because it's simple, ordinary time. And God uses it. And God uses that. He uses our time at the table. Not, that, not necessarily all of the crazy things that we would imagine, but just the simple time. I love how Simon Carey Holt puts it. He says, It's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and everyday that it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. At its base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's Spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. Providing a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's Spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. Whatever it looks like, your own table is a sacred place. The spaces that you carve out to spend time with people far from God are sacred spaces that God wants to use and step into. And I hope that just frees you up Hope it just frees you up. I, I think we, we said this a couple weeks ago, right? We talked about mission, and we said every Christian is called to be on mission. Every Christian is a sent one from God. We also said a very convicting quote that stuck with me, and that's that a church that isn't on mission is just a bunch of disobedient Christians hanging out. That's a tough one. And I think the danger is that we can feel a great sense of pressure and kind of beat ourselves up because we can be like, well, I haven't done this. I'm not good at it. Or I am doing it and God's not doing anything with it. What's wrong with me? On, on top of that, I think we all feel this sense of pressure, right? That people just don't like Christians that much. I, I think there's this sense of like, ugh, if I bring up Jesus, they're going to not, maybe they won't hate me, maybe they will, but they definitely won't think as highly of me. And I'm afraid of that. I don't want to do it. And the issue becomes that some of us are so worried about having the, the big conversation, the spiritual conversation, that we avoid any conversation, that we avoid it all. And we don't put our set, ourselves in settings to actually have the conversations. So listen, be freed up. 
be freed up. You're called to do step one. Put yourself in, in the space where Jesus can and will show up. And maybe it'll take a lot more time than, you're, than you thought it would. It keeps happening. It's fine. Maybe it'll be awkward. Maybe questions will come up and you won't know what to do. That's okay. We've got to take the first step. Just like Jesus we let the ordinary space, the ordinary meals with ordinary people far from Him and pray that God would use it to save. Um, so what I, what I want to do, and this is what we'll do every week, is we'll just set it up and then talk about just very practicals. What do we do next? So I just want to take us through our practice guide. This is exactly what you'll be doing in groups this week, going through these four steps on how to eat and drink with people far from God. So you can write these down. It'll also be on our website. First thing we're going to do together as we try to make it a practice to eat and drink with those far from God is when we got to decide who. Decide who to do it with. So I think a helpful place to start is by thinking of three to five people uh, who don't know Jesus, who you're near. People like your neighbors, your coworkers, people you uh, maybe do hobbies with, run club, volleyball, things like that. And part of this is we're doing it together with our community groups. So as you're brainstorming this, it's not just something you're doing on an island. This is stuff we're doing together, which will go right into the next point. Decide what. So think of things, activities to do, things you like to do, things uh, that the people that you put in point one like to do. And then step three, decide when. You got to put it on your calendar. What are you going to do? When are you going to do it? Who are you going to do it with? Is this a one-time event? Are you setting up a rhythm? Things of that nature. And then invite the person. And don't get discouraged when they say no. Keep inviting them. Don't just let one time, oh, I had this thing. Don't let that be like, oh, they're rejecting me. Keep asking until they literally tell you, no, I do not like you as a person. Please leave me alone. That's when you can stop. That's like the, the out. Otherwise, just keep inviting. People like to be invited to things. Um, the last one is lean into the ministry of small talk. It just sounds like, ugh, that's good. Um, the late pastor, Eugene Peterson, he once wrote, um, speaking to people does not have the same personal intensity as listening to them. The question I put to myself is not how many people have you spoken to about Christ this week, but how many people have you listened to in Christ this week? Very simply, this is curiosity, attentiveness, and asking questions, which really is the best version of what small talk is. If, if you're hanging out with somebody for the first time, you don't have to say, do you want to know the path to salvation? That's not the thing right now. It could be. But more likely, it's just, what'd you do this week? What TV, show, what TV shows are you watching on Netflix? Are you just scrolling through for hours like I am? I mean, great. Very simply, we're just asking questions and then praying for God to move. And I think as you do this, as you practice this, I think you'll realize something pretty amazing. And it's that this is the only practice you already do. Because you already eat and drink two or three times a day. You already go to a coffee shop, probably more than you should every week. You already have hobbies. 
So it's very simply just saying, who am I doing the things I'm already doing with? You're already doing it. Good job. You're doing the practice. You're amazing. Um, I just want to end. Uh, I hope this is very helpful in our groups this week, but I just want to end. I, I personally do not uh, have a ton of stories. I'm just not the, the Christian, not the pastor that's like, man, I've, I've just been a part of ministries. There were hundreds of people who've been saved. That's not really my story, and that's fine. But I just wanted to tell a story one time about where I've seen this happen in my life. And um, it happened a few years ago um, with a friend I, I know. I'll, we'll call him Jake for the purposes of the story. And a couple years ago, it was probably five or six years ago, um, I met Jake at some, I think it was a birthday party. I, I can't even remember where it was, just a friend of a friend. And we just started talking and we found out we both love going to the same coffee shop. Like we go different days and we spend hours there studying, doing all that. So we just said, why don't we just go meet up? Why don't we hang out? You're already there. I'm already there. Let's just do that. So we did it. We set something on the calendar. We hung out one time. Nothing crazy. Just talking about life, talking about similar interests. We decided to do it again. And over time, probably months, it got to the point where we were hanging out almost weekly. And then six months went by and we kept hanging out. And then six more months went by. And then finally, after a year of getting coffee together, he decided to come to church with me. And then he came to church with me. And then he met a bunch of other Christians who were very annoying enough to get coffee with him too. And then six more months went by. And I can remember us starting to have conversations about God. He's starting to talk to these other people. It's a year and a half into getting coffee together. And I can remember... Me and the, these couple other guys that all knew him, we were just like, this guy, you know, we've been hanging out for so long. It just, he likes us. Why does he like us? We're Christians. Maybe he'll become a Christian. We should pray for him. And I remember we prayed, God, we, we want you to save this guy. <laughs> and we want to, we actually want to be in the baptismal with him um, at Easter. And I can remember uh, a couple months after that, some stuff happened into his, in his life. It was really hard. And for better or for worse, the people that were there were us. And God used that to save him. And we did get to baptize him. It's a beautiful story. That is not about saying we're all awesome or I'm awesome. That is totally just God doing crazy stuff through, wow, we like the same coffee shop. You want to go there this week? And continuing to show up and carving out the space. It's beautiful. And it can and will happen I was already hanging out at the coffee shop. So were, the, so were the other guys. So what does it look like for you to meet a Jake or to the Jakes that you already know and say, hey, do you want to go to this thing? What does it look like to invite somebody into the rhythm that you already have, the trivia, the run club, whatever it is, and just start doing that? You're already doing it, so let's do it with non-believers. Um, we, we do this. And as we go out and practice this, the key point is that this is exactly what Jesus did for us. That he, he came to us, his heart was for us, and he sought us out by grace and mercy. We were the sinners. We are the sinners. And he came to us to make us right with himself. And now what we do is we take the same grace to other people. That's what you're doing. As you go to coffee shops, to breweries, you're taking the grace of Jesus to those who do not know him yet. Um, that's part of what we uh, celebrate every week when we take communion. So you got a little cup on your pew.
I'll invite the band back up. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and wine. And he said, in, in, in acknowledging me, in remembrance of me, take the bread and wine that symbolizes my body and blood, broken and shed for you. So take the bread, which is a little wafer, and you can eat church, the body of Christ, broken for you. Likewise, he said, take the, take the wine, in our case, the juice, my blood shed for you. You can take and drink. Let me pray for us. Father God, we're thankful um, that we are the, the sinners and the tax collectors in these stories, that uh, it's scandalous that you would spend time with them and with us to make us right with yourself, Lord. We don't deserve it. But God, you're so gracious and kind to us that you would live and die and raise from the dead to save us, to make us right with yourself. Lord, we need your help and courage and strength to respond to what you've done for us to go to others. Lord, it's, it's very easy to feel like we're too busy. Sometimes we, we feel really afraid. So Lord, we need your help to change our hearts and our schedules to repent and follow you. We thank you that you're gracious and kind to do just that. Pray it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.